to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Trisha G, who is a developer advocate at JetBrains and is currently based in Spain. Trisha G, thanks so much for joining us on Maintainable. It's my pleasure to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the software industry, what do you see are some common traits of healthy and maintainable code? It's it's kind of easier to say, what sorts of unmaintainable code do you see? Right. Um, but yeah, in, so in terms of traits of maintainable code, it, it's, it's all the classic stuff, isn't it? Like um, short methods, classes that kind of do what they say they're supposed to do, naming conventions, which is sensible, you know, the, the kind of classic things. Keep it small, keep it short, keep it simple. And, you know, kind of alluding to what you were just saying. So on the other side of that, what are some telltale signs that perhaps your code base is impeding your team's productivity? It's usually things like big classes, big classes that do lots of things, spaghetti code. If your indentation is kind of going way off the right-hand side of your monitor, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. Method names that, there might be descriptive method names, but method names that don't actually describe what's really happening yeah, the kind of thing where if you were if you were reading the code as if it was a a document or a story, it would make no sense. It doesn't make sense as code either. Obviously, the bigger the application is, and and certainly the older the application is, the more likely it is to be difficult to navigate, difficult to understand. So, I mean, there are small applications which are difficult to maintain or understand, but generally speaking, the bigger they are, the more difficult it is. In the last few years, are, do you use the metaphor technical debt at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. And what does that mean to you? Or what have you seen that kind of referred to as? So I've worked at a lot of different places, right? I've worked at um, large enterprises. I've worked as a consultant. I've worked for financial trading platforms. Um, I've worked in places which are um, waterfall places which are agile. Technical debt, certainly in the earlier part of my career, when I came across it, it was kind of used as the backlog of stuff that the developers sort of think they should be doing, but have not got around to doing yet. Or, you know, lists of classes that they say need refactoring, um, which may or may not have a list of reasons to why they need refactoring. It's like, this class is horrible. It's clearly technical debt. Over time, particularly as, as I read more, I do, I have this monthly newsletter, Java Annotated Monthly. And so I read a lot of stuff to try and put stuff in there. And I read lots about technical debt. And I'm seeing more and more around how we should be thinking of technical debt in terms of how one really thinks about debt, financial debt. So technical debt isn't necessarily a bad thing in the same way that debt is not necessarily a bad thing. Certainly startups and when you're starting to get yourself on your feet financially as an as an individual human or a startup, you are going to incur a certain level of debt usually in order to, to bootstrap yourself, to get going. And it's the same with applications. It's okay to incur a certain amount of technical debt, things we have made a note of that we would like to perhaps address later when we better understand it or when we have more examples of where we might be able to create something which is reusable. But this is this is something which is conscious, is consciously incurred technical debt, something which should be paid back over time when it's the right time to pay it back. And I think that's the difference between what sort of real technical debt is and what we as developers generally mean when we say technical debt. Often we mean when we say technical debt, we mean stuff we didn't really like and perhaps we didn't really do it properly first time round. And now, you know, six months later on, I've read a, a more trendy article with new styles and I'd like to rewrite it in a different way. 
Yeah, I think there's often, you know, whether or not that developers are mislabeling something or miscategorizing it when it's just something they disagree with, maybe it's bad code, or in what types of environments have you seen it work well where that technical debt could get uh, addressed at some point, like from a process perspective? Is that something that you've seen work well where you kind of bundle it into, say, working on a user story or, you know, a new feature build out versus individual backlog items somewhere that's like refactor X? Yeah, so weirdly, in one place where I've worked, I've seen, and, and they were the best at both working in agile way, um, extreme programming way, and they were the best technical organization I've ever worked for. I, I saw them handle technical debt poorly and well at the same time. Um, so yeah, for exactly that reason, sometimes you would have maybe a card on the backlog, which is like, refactor this module. You're like, okay, that's not particularly helpful way of describing it. And clearly, if you have a technical debt card, particularly sort of epic on the backlog, it's it's never going to be prioritized by the business. And it's kind of scary for the developers to to think, well, we have to stop working on all these features in order to refactor this thing. At the same place, we also, if we were picking up a, a new story or particularly a new epic in one area, we would begin by saying, look, are there some areas of, of what we call technical debt in this module, in this area? Is this a good opportunity to refactor some of this stuff? Are there opportunities now for reuse, which can allow us to scratch some of the itches in this particular area? And by kind of folding some of the technical debt in with new features, it meant that it did get addressed in time. But there's also, there's somewhere in between that, isn't there? And that if you're going to fold it into an existing story, then you need to find an existing story that that addresses that kind of technical debt. But some of this debt does need to be repaid and may not be assigned to business value. There may not be a story or, or a set of business value for it. So you do need to find a way sometimes to sort of say, uh, for example, Java is upgrading. Java has a new version every six months at the moment, right? The business is never going to prioritize, right? You're going to need to upgrade from Java 8 to Java 11. Um, you're going to need to find a way, and whether you call that technical debt or not, but it's a technical story as opposed to a business value story. You're going to need to find a way to carve out the time to do something that's kind of potentially big like that, or certainly needs to be done with care and testing. Um, and I think it's important for development teams that really care about the the technology and care about keeping things clean-ish to allow themselves to prioritize technical stories as well as business stories. But you still need to be able to have business value for it. For example, going from Java 8 to Java 11, the business value might be, well, it's generally higher performance. We also have new features which allow us to potentially be more productive as developers. But we need to highlight those business value points for this technical story and then test whether that's true or not. Is it more performant for us? Are there new features more useful for us? Are there places we can use that rather than just kind of plunge straight in there and say, we're going Java 11 because I said so. Yeah, that, it's always interesting to hear how different teams try to navigate that. I'm always curious about when there's there's a team that is aware of some technical debt and maybe new people come in. And we know that there's like an area of the code, like at some point we're hoping that we refactor it when the time is right. But then as new people come into the project, do they then go through the process of identifying it again? If the team's like, oh yeah, we already discussed that. We're going to live with that for now. But like, how does a team effectively kind of keep a, a mental model or know that there's a list of things like that somewhere that they can go refer to or add something to a list somehow? Have you seen any effective approaches for just documenting or capturing that out of people's heads a little bit? 
Yeah, definitely. At the place I was just talking about, we used an issue tracking piece of software, but we also had physical cards for tracking stuff on the backlog. And if I recall correctly, I think the technical debt cards were a slightly different colour. That was one way of making sure that you had visibility over them and to, to figure out whether you were going to assign them or not. One of the things I quite like about the JetBrains tool set is, so one of the tools I am an advocate for is Upsource, which is our code review tool. One of the things I love about it is that you can annotate your code via Upsource. So instead of writing code level comments, you write comments in Upsource the same way that you would, if you're doing a pull request, obviously you can comment on lines of code in a GitHub pull request. With Upsource, one of the things you can do is instead of having that comment attached to a code review, you can have it just attached to the code and not a review. So that when you're navigating through the code and you've got the Upsource plugin in IntelliJ IDEA, you can sort of see let's say it's one of your classes, which is like, oh, this is this kind of a nice candidate for refactoring, or there's some stuff here, which is a little bit smelly. You can put an upsource comment in there saying, look, we did it this way for like this ticket number, this particular issue for these reasons. We've raised an additional ticket over here for some of the technical debt that we might like to to pay back. You know, so, and then the, the, the comments could be, and you could probably do this with code comments as well. And um, the comments are along the lines of, let's not address this now because of X, Y, and Z, or let's address it at a point where we're trying to do this or at a point where we have time, which never happens. You know, we can address this when, but having those comments sort of aligned with the code itself meant that new people could read that and be like, oh, okay, now I understand why this looks a bit weird. Or now I know why now is not the right time to extract a method from this to reuse things. That's interesting. You know, I've not actually seen the upsource tool myself yet, but, you know, I know one of the struggles that teams have is with documentation potentially going becoming outdated. Does upsource help kind of guide that a little bit more or is it still kind of up to developers to be mindful to tidy up things and documentation as they go? And to some extent, there's that. Like if one of the good things is that if, say you've attached a comment, an upsource comment to a particular line of code, if that line of code gets deleted, then the comment disappears. So it's like, it's not there anymore. But it, it suffers from the same problem potentially as code level comments, which is that, you know, you, you've you got a comment somewhere near the top of a method, you refactor bits and pieces of that method, that comment near the top of the method may no longer apply as much as it did. But that's kind of one of the reasons why I like the idea of using these comments for specifically technical debt. So instead of being like explanatory comments of, oh, this is what the method does, these are more comments as in, if you have a comment here, it's probably something around technical debt. So it's something you you need to read when you're changing this code and, you know, and, and potentially update. But yeah, it definitely potentially can suffer from the same problems as documentation or code comments in that, you know, it's, it's down to the developer to read it and update it if applicable. And while we're talking about tools, I'd like to talk a little bit about your role at JetBrains. So you're a developer advocate. So what is involved with that role like that? Mostly what I do is I try and help developers get productive with our tools. I've been doing this at JetBrains for five years, but I think I was sort of accidentally doing it before anyway, because I was um, I was working with IntelliJ IDEA as a Java developer. I was pair programming with people who were really effective with the IDE. And when I saw what you could do with the IDE, like how you don't have to type as much, how it can generate things for you, how, you know, how it can fix stuff up for you. I was like, I wish I'd known this 10 years ago. 
this would have just made my life significantly easier. And so when I started presenting at conferences and at user groups and stuff, I would do some live demos and, you know, people would ask me, oh, how did you do that? What's what's this thing? And then JetBrains basically hired me to do that for them. <laughs> so a lot of what I do is um, when I'm at conferences, I do live demos and kind of say, look, you're building a Spring application. So I'm demoing say building a Spring Boot application, but incidentally showing you if this is the sort of technical problem you're trying to fix, this is how the IDE can help you. So that's kind of at conferences. And then also I do like blog posts and screencasts and Twitter tips and stuff to kind of say, hey, this is cool stuff, which is kind of useful probably. Yeah, that's great. And how does a tool like IntelliJ help developers with say working specifically with uh, legacy code? There's a number of different ways. One of the things is so the most useful shortcuts for me when I started using it, when I was working for some of these big enterprises, simple things like the navigation inside the IDE. So navigate to declaration, find usages, instead of navigating through the code in terms of file by file, which is what I used to do, it's actually using the code to navigate through the code. So I want to make a change to this class. I better find out who's using this class. I want to change the way this method works. Let's use find usages to find who's calling me. And then, of course, there's the refactoring. So I I always advocate like gently changing the code in the right direction because the big bang changes are the things which are difficult to sell, risky and difficult to implement. So one of the things I like about IntelliJ IDEA is you can use it to do the small things like let's rename this method to something which is a little bit more correct. I used to see people when I was working at the financial exchange, this was mind blowing to me because I'd been working on a lot of legacy applications. The people I was pairing with would be like, oh, I'm just going to change the name of this class. I'm just going to change the name of this method because I think it's more readable this way. And I was like, wow, you can, you can just do that. And you know, you don't have to worry about the implications of where that happens. And yeah, you can trust the IDE to do some of those refactoring. Things like extract variable, which is useful for, again, renaming little bits of code, which might be a little bit confusing. Extract methods. So these enormous methods get chunked down into smaller methods with with more readable names. There are bigger refactorings like extract interface and the ability to push pull members up to an interface or superclass or push them down into a, into a subclass. And one of the things I really like, which I used quite a lot, was replace, what was it called? Replace inheritance with delegation. So where people abuse inheritance hierarchies, you can have IntelliJ ideas say, okay, we're not going to use the inheritance hierarchy to share stuff. We can replace inheritance with delegation so that we can separate some of these concerns and clean up some of our hierarchies. Interesting. You know, for those like myself who aren't working in Java, I work in the Ruby world. Does JetBrains offer any products specifically for tools like Ruby on Rails? Yes. So we have an IDE called RubyMine for Ruby. So IntelliJ IDEA is the Java one, but it's also IntelliJ IDEA Ultimate is also the polyglot one. So all of the other IDEs you can get in Ultimate. But we have WebStorm for web stuff, for JavaScript, HTML, CSS, PHP Storm, CLion for C and C++. Oh, we have Rider for .NET, Resharper, which goes into Visual Studio as well, and a bunch more, which I've probably forgotten. But um, most of the languages have their own IDE. Given your experience, do you believe developers are spending enough or investing enough time in learning how to better use their tools? I know it's, it's great that you're producing a lot of documentation and giving demos, and you know whether those are with screencasts or you know, at live conferences. 
how much time do you feel like developers should try to earmark for spending time just to learn how to better use the tools that they're already working with? So even before I joined JetBrains, I would say you should definitely spend some time. <laughs> Having been one of those developers who for 10 years invested zero time in learning the tool, learning what was coming up in Java. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the thing is as developers, we're always learning on the job, right? We're always Googling, how do I do this? We're always on Stack Overflow going, I've got this error. You know, you're always learning these things, but it's almost always reactive to something you're trying to achieve and are stuck on or know there's a better way of doing it. We don't spend enough time thinking, okay, well, why don't I spend half an hour doing a coding cutter? Why don't I spend half an hour? For example, the IDE has a training mode. It's a called features trainer. So you could spend half an hour using the features trainer and it could say, you know, you, there's this feature, this does this. How do you do that? Use this keyboard shortcut and just spending even half an hour a month would be significantly more than most developers are, are doing right now. I imagine that's fairly true. It's always interesting when you see developers, like say, even on our own team, when they sit down to pair, I feel like that's when they learn a lot about how people, other people think like, how did you, what was that that you just typed? And how did you do that? I always hear that that ends up being one of the best byproducts of pair programming sometimes is just level up on your knowledge of how to integrate with some of the tools that aren't necessarily going to be right in front of you. And I think it's a, it's great that JetBrains has tools that actually have some training modes in there. I think usually a lot of software editors, it's like, all right, here's a file navigation. Here's your code. You know, there's a bunch of things in the menu you can go try to figure out, but that's not always like super clear on how to like when to apply those or what the shortcuts would look like for that. Or so I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And actually that's the thing, because I was pair programming. That's how I learned how to use IntelliJ IDEA. And I've been using IDEA for three years or so before I joined this company where I was pairing and I was using it as a text editor. And then you're pairing with people and they're like, here's refactoring. You're like, you just blew my mind. <laughs> I had no idea you could do that. And that's one of the reasons why I do live demos, because it's much more effective to teach people how to use the tool in a sort of pair programming way, like you say, than it is to say, here's this shortcut, here's this shortcut, here's this shortcut. When do you use it? I think in, in this type of scenario, the context helps. How do you how do you embrace it in your in your day to day programming? How do you start to like put this in when I'm creating a class? This is my new workflow for creating a class. That's interesting. I know one of the things like I personally have struggled with is I'm I'm not I've never been diagnosed with being dyslexic, but I I do have maybe a, an inclination that reading manuals or watching a lot of videos on how to do things without there being some context for me, at least from a learning perspective, I do learn better when I'm like, all right, I'm trying to do this. And then I go search for what are some ways to do that with this tool? Like, will the tool allow me to do this or if I don't have to do it completely manually? But it's, it's hard for me to kind of get that, that learning when I'm just watching someone else do a bunch of stuff. If I'm not part of that process somehow, I think, like, what exactly are we trying to change here? And as I'm thinking about that, I can rattle off a bunch of tools that I have installed on my, my computer that I, I rarely know how to like use any of the like advanced shortcuts. So I don't even know what the which specific key some of the Apple icons signify when I see shortcuts, and I have to go look that up like all the time. Why is that not on the keyboard? So transition a little bit away from specifically about tools, but I want to talk about. I know that you've worked on a couple of different projects over the years, and in particular, you know, you touched on that you were part of a team that rewrote, set out to rewrite a MongoDB driver for Java. What led your team to take on such a project, and how did that go? First up front, I do want to say like. I really liked working for MongoDB. It was a very good learning experience. I don't want anyone to come out of this thinking, oh, MongoDB don't know what they're doing. It was a really good experience. When I joined, 
we basically doubled the size of the team working on the Java driver. So we thought, great, this is a good opportunity to do the kinds of refactorings that we were talking about earlier in terms of technical debt. A lot of developers look at particular classes or particular projects and think, well, I would like to clean this up. And that's kind of where we were with the Java driver. We looked at it and it was a couple of hundred classes. It wasn't big, certainly not compared to the sorts of applications that we'd worked on in the past. And so we kind of decided, well, it's getting on a little bit. It, it hasn't had a team devoted to it before. It was just kind of hodgepodge, like it's an open source project, which kind of hacked together. And um, so now we have a team devoted to it. It seems like a really good time to to clean it up, to have an architecture. We also had an idea of the, the business problem we were trying to solve, which is that it's all well and good having a Java driver, which allows Java developers to kind of chuck stuff into MongoDB and read stuff from it. But we know that Java, the language is not the only language based off the JVM. And we have other languages, like a lot of people were using Scala to try and do NoSQL stuff. And now there's Kotlin and Groovy and a bunch of other JVM languages. So we knew that the Java driver, the way that it was written, was not in a great position to support JVM languages generally. It's really, it was a very Java-y type way of working and it wasn't friendly for the other JVM languages. So we kind of thought it'd be a good idea to, to rewrite it and we'll rewrite it with a separation of concerns. We'll have like a, a command layer, which other JVM language drivers might plug into to provide a more idiomatic way of working with the driver from a different language. Um, but also has a, a Java layer as well for like the default Java language way of working with it. And this seemed like a really good idea. And it also would get us away from, we had kind of a, a God class type thing, as you often do with these slightly smaller applications. They start obviously with one class and this just grows instead of doing like actual object-oriented design. So this will allow us to kind of separate off bits of this God class and kind of like really separate the concerns properly. And we thought it's only a couple of hundred classes, like how hard can it be? <laughs> um, as you can imagine, it was a little bit more difficult than we expected. <laughs> Did that end up getting fully rewritten then? It was fully rewritten. It was released. So I stayed at MongoDB for two years. It was released after I left. So we really didn't think it was going to take, I think it must have taken about three years to release this. One of the problems, and we knew as well, we knew going in, this is the other interesting thing about it. So me and the other person on the team, we're experienced developers. I had 15 years experience. He had maybe more like 20 years experience working in different places. We knew going in, there were potential pitfalls to be aware of, like the database is going to be releasing new versions of the database regularly. I can't remember what it was, like every quarter or half a year, whatever it was. So we would need to provide support for the new features in the database in the driver. And what we didn't want to do is we didn't really want to be working on a new version of the driver and supporting the old version of the driver at the same time, because there's only two of us and there's really too much work to be doing that kind of thing. But it turned out that when we kind of tried to make that decision and the way that we tried to separate the work on effectively one branch versus another, we ended up having to maintain both of them anyway, going forward. There's a number of complicated reasons for that. One was at the same time, Java 8 came out and Java 8 was a bit different to Java 6 and 7. What I didn't realize is that as a library developer, you don't have the luxury of moving to the latest version of Java. You have to be on the oldest version of Java that your users are using. So we have to support this old version of Java, the old versions of the database, plus new versions of the database, plus the new version of the driver itself. 
And so the sort of matrix of dependencies got kind of hairy. And we ended up having to support both the old version of the driver and the new version of the driver simultaneously while trying to backport stuff. And yeah, the, the other guy who was working on the app, he did a really good job of actually managing all of this and getting stuff out the door. But um, it was a significantly bigger project than I expected. And if I'd sort of thought about, if I'd been aware of some of those problems going into it, I think I would have approached it in a very different way. Instead of rewriting it from the ground up, I think I would have tried to work with the God class and separate stuff out bit by bit. I'd like to have, what do we call it? Like an anti-corruption layer between the old code and the new code, gradually add new modules for new functionality, perhaps keep the old code where it was. Because in the end, we sort of needed to do this anyway, while we were supporting both the new and the old, we sort of had to like hack new stuff onto the old stuff anyway. So perhaps we should have just taken that approach to begin with and live within the existing code base and migrate it gradually rather than rewrite it. Do you often find yourself more on team refactor versus team rewrite? Yes, but that's partly because having worked in large enterprises, in large enterprises, there is no rewrite option. I think that one of the reasons I got a bit carried away with and excited with the idea of the rewrite option is because I've never been in a position to be able to do that before. And, um, and I know I've read Joel Spolsky's blog about never do a rewrite and all of the, I know we both knew going into it, but we sort of thought it's small enough. This is a possible thing to do. I, I don't think that was necessarily the right choice. Having said that, if we'd done a refactor, it could still perhaps have taken three years just because of the, the tension between supporting new features for the database, plus adding the new features that we want for the driver, plus the refactoring, it might just have taken three years regardless. Just taking a quick moment to reflect on just how complicated being a maintainer on a, like, say, a database library for a specific language is probably an underappreciated effort that people put their time and energy into. So thank you for that. I'm not a Java developer, but on behalf of Java developers out there that are that use tools like MongoDB and, and need to rely on tools like that, those like in every language, I know there's a lot of libraries for things like different database layers. Someone's got to maintain that stuff and make it work across versions. And that's got to be a challenging thing to manage with. We were lucky because MongoDB, were, were they employed us to do that. So we didn't have to do it on our spare time. But when I think about how much time we invested in it as paid employees, I look at people who do it in open source for free and I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> There's just a lot of time. And it's it, like you say, it's kind of a thankless task. People are like, why aren't you using Java 57? And you're like, because, you know, I'm doing this on my spare time. <laughs> We'll be back with our interview with Trisha in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Trisha G. I know that you've also participated in a number of user groups over the years. And for those listening who may not be participating or even consider the idea of joining a user group, how have they helped you? Oh, I just, it's difficult to even express how much they've helped me. I first joined the London Java user group. I was living in in New York for a year. And when I moved back to London, even though I'd been in London before, I needed to reestablish myself in London. I needed a, I needed a new job. I needed a new group of people to hang out with because most of my friends had got married and moved away. You know, I, I needed I needed a new everything. 
I kind of I joined Meetup, obviously, and I joined a bunch of different Meetup groups, including wine tasting and stuff that wasn't technical. But it turned out that actually the the Java user group was just more. It was easier for me to join to be part of because I've been doing Java development for ten years. These are my people. I I know these people, even though I'd never been part of a user group before. It was more, I could see more value in it than just like turning up and making new friends because I wanted to get a new job. When I joined them, they had a lot of like vendors come in to give talks about Spring or AWS or, you know, something like professional developer advocates like I am now would come and give a presentation. And I'm like, this is kind of fine, but if I'm not using this specific technology, it's not that valid for me. So I kind of complained to the the person who was running it and said like, can we just have social evenings as well, just to like chat and get to know each other. And so he started doing those as well. Well, he said, you can start running those. And I was like, ah, this is my first example of how user groups work. If you speak up and say, I think we should do something different, then it's a good opportunity for you to own that thing and make it happen because you're the one who wants that to happen. And very quickly, I became part of the sort of leadership team of the London Java community just because I kept making suggestions and they kept saying, go and do those things. So in the end, I got this great job at the at the financial trading platform. I hired a bunch of people to work with me via the London Java community because I met interesting people who seemed cool, who I wanted to work with. I actually also met my husband at the London Java community. And, and hired him to come and work for us too. I was, I didn't meet him, marry him, then hire him. <laughs> I met him, we hired him and then later on married him. So yes, yeah, so that changed my life too, because he joined the London Java user group, but he's Spanish and we decided to move to Spain. And none of this would have happened if I hadn't gone to the user group and leveled up my career and met these people and done this stuff. On top of that, the people who ran the the London Java user group, they kept sort of pushing me and saying, well, you're so, um, what's the right word, Uh, opinionated, that you should like give presentations and you should talk at these things. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of more kind of turn up and drink wine sort of person. And, you know, they pushed me to do some presentations. And then after my first short presentation, like a 15 minute lightning talk, I was co-presenting at Java One with my boss's boss. You know, and then I was well on the path to becoming a developer advocate. So, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to blog. I wanted to speak at conferences. I wanted to do one of the things I enjoyed doing weirdly as a developer was documenting stuff and helping people to understand like, what does this code do and why does it do it? And that's, that kind of led me towards developer advocacy because that's what our job is. What is this doing and why does it do it this way? And none of that would have happened without being part of the London Java user group. That's great. I used to, I'm I'm reflecting on my own progression as a developer in the community. And I used to participate in like a Linux user group. It was, I think back then I didn't know a lot of people that were interested in say slightly more obscure technologies. I like, I used to work at a company and we worked with .NET. So at work, people would talk about .NET stuff and I had very little interest in .NET, just something I knew how to do. And I was really interested in open source. So I would find myself gravitating to these small local user groups where I could talk with people about these things. It was just like their hobby or interest. And so they had a different career, but they were they were dabbling in these technologies. And I always thought that was really interesting. I can attest to, at one point in my career, I felt like user groups were so valuable. And then and it's always interesting now that I'm like, I don't really participate the, with them in, in the same way anymore. But when we bring in new junior people or people that are coming in that join, join my company, it is one of the things that they, they're still doing, and, and I think that's great that they're able to find that. But then I meet a lot of people that are just like, I don't feel like that's what I want to do with my, say, my free time is to go talk with a bunch of, say, nerds or geeks about some programming language. 
I get that that's not for everybody either, but that's that's definitely true because uh, so now where, the time I'm talking about, I was like mm, just turned thirty, and I just really needed to. I just felt it was the right time to level up my career. And on top of that, my well, I used to do running and stuff, but my only other interest was was tech. Now I'm in my forties. I've got two kids; they're two and four. I'm not going to user groups anymore, you know, and my husband runs the Seville Java user group here in Spain, but like, I don't have the time or as much of an inclination to do that, but it did serve its purpose and it was important to, to use it when I could. And I do still present at user groups. Now I present at our user group when I'm trying out a new presentation. If I'm going to a new city for a conference, I want to go and talk to the user groups and, and give back like to the, the groups that helped me get to where I am. I think that's really great. Do you have any advice for listeners out there who may not be living in a, a large enough city or area where they feel like they're maybe in-person meetups might not be super possible without like a couple hour commute. Do you have any advice to them on how to find something like that? In the Java community, there is a virtual Java user group for exactly that. It's it's run by a, a couple of oh, well friends of mine because like now everyone who's like a, a leader of the user group in the Java world is someone I know. So yeah, there's a virtual Java user group, definitely. They do basically online presentations, so it's online webinars. But as you sort of said, one of the points is to get together and meet people. So there's there's a chat, I think it's on Slack now, but there's like a, a chat back end too. So you kind of turn up, turn up and and you chat there and you you can ask questions and you know, it's a really nice way to obviously learn stuff, but also to get to know some of the names inside the community, which is one of the things that helped me in my career was when I went to that first Java one, I went with one of the leaders of the London Java community and my boss's boss. And both of them introduced me to different types of people inside the Java community. One was very well embedded in the performance space. So he introduced me to loads of performance experts in the Java world. And the leader of the LJC, he was very involved in the user group community. So he introduced me to a bunch of people in terms of user group leaders and in terms of the Java community process leaders. And that's networking is what helped launch my career as much as anything else. And with a virtual Java user user group, you can still sort of do that because you'll sort of see these names online and chat to them. And Twitter is quite good for that sort of thing as well. I mean, Twitter can also be a very interesting place, particularly if you're not a straight white man. But, um, you know, as long as you as long as you seek out the types of people that you want to follow, you talk about the types of things that you want to talk about, yeah, just basically find your people out there. That's how I find most of my content, most of the stuff that I, I read about, most of the stuff I publish in my newsletter is through Twitter, through the people I follow, who I respect, who say interesting stuff. You know, for those that are listening and might have considered maybe joining a user group or maybe even just say like start blogging as an example, or even having some sort of public facing sharing their perspective and experience as a software developer. I know firsthand from a number of people that I work with closely in my own company that one of the things like I personally have way less of a personal filter on feeling comfortable sharing things in the public sphere. And I know a lot of people that are like, well, I don't know if I have anything to say or that hasn't been said already. Any advice for those types of people that are like that actually have, you know, that are learning a lot, but they're not necessarily feeling comfortable to share because they feel like they're maybe not qualified to or don't have anything new to say. I have loads of advice. I've always got loads of advice around blogging and conference speaking. It's kind of the same sort of thing. Like you say, people are like, I don't really know what to talk about. I don't have anything to say. Certainly in terms of conference talks, but it also applies to blogs too. The getting started with, the introduction to, which of course people have done a million times before, is actually still one of the most interesting and, and useful topics. 
particularly when you're talking about something which is kind of like creeping up the adoption curve. So for example, Docker, right? Like everyone's using Docker now, theoretically, but there's like 90% of developers out there going, I don't know what Docker is, but I don't tell anyone because everyone's using it. So as soon as there's a blog post, which is like introduction to Docker for Java developers or a user group talk, which is introduction to Docker for people who are late to the train, these kinds of talks, which are intro level, so relatively easy to write, are super useful for for other developers out there. I always, when I'm thinking about my blog posts and my conferences, I'm always thinking about what do I want to tell a developer like me or developer like I was two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And thinking that way, you don't have to be an expert. You're not like you don't know all the ins and outs of how the JVM works, but you can say, look, there's this trick I learned, which is kind of useful. And the, the interesting thing about pitching it that way is if I tell you a kind of interesting and useful tip trick that I've discovered and you already know it, you don't think, oh, that's stupid. You think, oh, I'm really smart because I already knew that. So there's this cool trick where if you tell people interesting and useful stuff that you know, either people will read it or hear it and go, great, I didn't know that and learn it. Or people will read it and hear it and go, oh, I did know that. I'm so smart. So there's no downside to writing or talking about something that someone else knows about. You know, that's, I'm thinking about, I can't recall who, where this quotation came from, but I I, I literally in the last like 24 hours, I saw something where it said, our job is to remind people, not to instruct people. And... I think it might actually have been maybe but from the author of the five dysfunctions of, of a team or something like that. But I was watching some video thing in the last day or two and I heard that get popped up. And but I, I think that it kind of like hit me in a weird way, like, oh my gosh, like that's such a good reminder. But you know, I I've I've literally had conversations in the last weeks with recent weeks with uh, like one of our junior developers who's working on an article about something and they're having a hard time like finishing it because they're like, this other article just says it better. And can we just send a like it would be better just to send a link to that that article. I'm like, but you have your own take on this. It's okay to do it in your own style and not feel like you're, you don't have to, it's not plagiarism. If you're following through and like, this is how we do it. This is how you did it on this type of thing. Here's what you learned through that process. And it's, it's just one of those little barriers that people, I think, put up and I'm not saying it's an excuse, but no, it's, it's, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. And particularly for more junior developers, because they're like, well, I'm junior, I've got nothing to say. But in actual fact, your experience as a junior or a newbie is more important in some ways, because you don't understand the documentation. That's fine. That proves that the documentation is badly written. <laughs> you have found a hole in this thing. Okay. Then that's as for people like us who work for tools companies, having a junior come along and say, like, I wrote this blog because your documentation didn't cover it, for example, is fantastic because we're like, oh, it's true. <laughs> and we can point to that blog. Or the other thing is that when you're writing a, like an experience report, which is your experience, no one can correct you on your experience. That was your experience with that. You found it difficult to navigate the documentation or you found it easy to do this, but not to do that. It seemed obvious to do it this way, or it did not seem obvious to do it that way. And what you're doing is you're writing your experience report and somebody else out there, one person maybe, or a hundred people have a similar experience to you and they will benefit from your viewpoint, from your experience. I think that's some really sage advice there for people. I have a couple of kind of last questions for you. You know, I think these are a lot of good topics here related to understanding your tools, getting better at them, leveling up, also to 
putting yourself out there to potentially go to user groups or to even give talks at local user groups or conferences or submitting to a, you know, to a call for proposals for a co- upcoming conference. Like those are all things that I want to encourage people to do. And I know that you're definitely encouraging people to do that. So thank you for that. I'm curious if you can, what book do you find yourself most often recommending to people that's say a non-software development related book to people in an industry? Oh, oh, I should have thought about this beforehand. <laughs> I can tell you the book that I most often recommend people to read. I don't know if this answers exactly your question, but it's a book called Programmed Inequality by Mar Hicks. It's about how women were pushed out of programming as a career with the use case of the British government and how they actively pushed women out and encouraged men in. It's fascinating. It's really interesting because everyone knows that women were programmers in sort of the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And then now in the 2020, there's actually fewer programmers, women programmers than there was in 2000 and certainly fewer than there was in the 1980s. You're like, wait a minute, how come the women in other STEM fields, particularly maths and to some extent physics, maths is like way beyond halfway now, women graduates and stuff. And that's just been accelerating. And yet computer science has been dropping off. And this book is very interesting because it shows how in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, women were actively put off from being computer programmers. Hmm. It's very interesting. I will definitely include a link to that in the show notes and stuff as well. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Twitter, Trisha underscore G, T-R-I-S-H-A underscore G-E-E at, well, no, at Twitter. You know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Trisha. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, 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 oh.